This is Vintage Broadcasting. The following is a study through the book of Philippians. My name is Frank Goss. I hope this study proves beneficial to you in the days to come. I thank you very much. Now, we asked at the end of our previous study, why persecution? Why does God allow persecution? This is where Paul is bringing us, and these are the things he causes us to think about. Right here in the ending of the chapter, he says, uh, To you it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and you now hear to be in me. Why persecution? Well, it's not suffering through an illness that he's referring to here. Persecution actually reveals your walk with Christ, okay? It doesn't determine whether you're a Christian. It's not showing a declaration to the world that, hey, look, I'm being persecuted, therefore I am a Christian, you see. That, that is not the purpose of what he's saying. James Montgomery Boyce, a tremendous theologian, suggests that it's a token of salvation and a token of the destruction for the one who fails to believe. And that's a good point. We'll look at that. Persecution has a way of speaking to the Christian regarding integrity. Earlier, Paul called on the Christians in Philippi to live as citizens of heaven. Now this, we have already discussed this in our last lesson, but this referenced their citizenship in the Roman Empire. And that citizenship was a special privilege and something that people were very proud of. It meant something to be a Roman citizen back then. It used to mean a great deal to be considered an American. But today, even those within the nation are decrying American exceptionalism. It doesn't mean much today. However, in Rome, it did mean a great deal at the time of this writing. In Philippi, it was a little Rome. It was governed by the laws of Rome, and those laws were fair but strict. Being a Roman citizen at that time was the height of human dignity. Within the Roman city-state, you had protection. You also had an established culture, and you came to expect certain privileges. The citizens of Rome were very much aware of their citizenship. Rome was seen as their mother. They spoke Latin. They dressed as Romans. They wore their hair like Romans. They were stubbornly Roman, meaning that they appreciated their citizenship and they contributed to the blessings of Rome. In a great sense, they lived as one people with one mind and purpose, the edification and the strengthening of the Roman Empire. And Paul was saying, look, you understand that Rome means a great deal. You understand how important it is to be a Roman citizen. You saw what happened to me while I was there in Philippi. You saw what happened when I let the magistrates know that I was a Roman citizen. The citizenship of Rome brings a great intimidation to those outside of Rome. And it also is something to be greatly valued. You know that. Much more citizenship of heaven should be. Get hold of this. Conduct yourselves in this manner, that you are a citizen of heaven. Live in a manner that is consistent with the citizenship before God. Let your culture, your words, and your behavior reflect your values. That's all. That's what he's saying here. And later in the letter, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. We've been translated out of this kingdom, this world. He's telling the Philippians, you've been translated out of Rome. You've been translated out of the, of the darkness of that kingdom into the kingdom of God's dear son. Recognize this and live accordingly. Now, integrity speaks of an internal character. That's what's hurting the church today. So many churches profess to be a group of citizens bound for heaven. But yet we live 
and conduct ourselves as citizens bound to the earth. We're living hypocritically. Our lives are not reflecting our profession. We preach one principle, and then we live by another. Paul is pointing out that we need to embrace the Word of God. We need to believe it and live accordingly. We don't march according to the principles of Rome. We live and we die with Christ. Now, in that we don't see this or understand this completely, we live a contradiction. We live for ourselves, our church, our community, our world here. We live for our well-being. We want the good job, the good income, the good neighborhood, the good car, the good neighbors. We want exactly what they want. And we actively pursue, in an aggressive manner, the things that they want to pursue. And we do it with gusto. Now, why would we do that? Well, it's the American way. We don't understand it, do we? If any man, Paul says, is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. That means the government of his, his life has changed. And with that government come a, comes a new set of laws, a new requirement on behavior, a new culture. We no longer live in Kansas, Dorothy. As we study and adjust, which is the work of sanctification, we begin to realize these things. And as we begin to realize these things, we start to understand. And then we start to understand what God wants of us and expects. This is the work of sanctification. We begin to realize these things are true and should be applied. And then we begin to apply them in the church, personally within ourselves, and as a body, we begin to exercise these principles. As we begin to understand, we begin to see where we are holding on to the ways of the world to which we no longer belong. Our desire has to change and must. Our understanding must be altered. And it's been created anew. And that's where sanctification comes in. I was sorely reminded of this a few years ago when a church in the Atlanta metro area was having some difficulty. And there were discussions being made about how to use the budget and where to apply the funds. One young man who was well-trained, university-studied, and a professional in the accounting field, he stood up and addressed a church. In his address, he stated very clearly that the bottom line of all things was what really mattered. And so we had to take our finances and put them together and consider the bottom line. I was ready to stand up and challenge his summation, but my wife held me down and let me know, no, this is not your church. So I listened incredulously. There was a great lack of understanding in this man's mind. He did not understand that we don't live by the bottom line. We live by the Word of God. Well, you say, well, there's no money. Who owns the cattle on a thousand hills? If he calls us to do something, don't you think he has thought about the money? Do you think he's thought about the means and the ways? That's the bottom line. And we forget that. Why? Because the principles of this world govern so much in our thinking. The miraculous takes a back seat. The principles of this world take control. That's where we're erring as a church. Our desire has to change and must. Our understanding must be altered. And that's where sanctification comes in. And this only happen, sanctification, will only happen as we study, commit ourselves to study and to truly know, to really pray, to fellowship, and to listen to godly men who can accurately divide the word of truth and then apply what we learn. And then we do this corporately as a body in the church. Overall, what we're studying here is what Paul is telling to the church 
at Philippi. And what Paul is telling to the church that you're sitting in today. One pastor shared with his large congregation that word had come to him about a certain lawyer in their midst that had been practicing immoral practices within his law firm. He was practicing in a corrupt manner. He didn't name any names, but he did address the matter in a very stern fashion. A rebuke was given. Well, as a result, 22 lawyers out of his large church came forward to repent. The world looks on the profession Christian and says, you know, you don't look, smell, or sound delivered of anything. You look, live, and act just like we do. So what's the appeal? What's the benefit? Paul's addressing that matter. He says, look, it doesn't matter if I'm with you or not. You answer to the Lord. You stand before God. Paul knew men, and he knew that we were easily influenced and were prone to wonder. It's easy for us to wander off and to take hold of bad ideas and bad concepts. He asked the Galatians point blank, how can you be so soon removed from what the things I taught from the things that I taught you? We look at our children and we ask them the same thing, don't we? You weren't brought up that way. Now, how can we tell if we're conducting ourselves in a proper manner? Now, here we must see who Paul is talking to again. He's not speaking to a particular individual so much as he is speaking to the church. When we start taking things out of context and applying them out of context, it can get us into a little trouble. It can bring us to be an isolated Christian, the lone, uh, the lone cowboy on the range. This is talking to the body, to the church, to all of us. It can be applied personally, true, but it's written to the church, the people at Philippi. Now, we can tell if we're living in the proper way, if we're standing firm as one, with one mind. We, as a body, don't compromise with sin. Not legalistically, but we don't compromise with sin. We continually watch and maintain our testimony. We don't budge doctrinally. Unity comes first with an understanding of the facts, and then an agreement on those facts. Our army going into World War II was extremely unified because we saw the enemy was very real and violent, and we all agreed on that. These things refer to the teaching of the church, the doctrine. Doctrine brings unity. You cannot have unity in a church where a multiplicity of doctrines are being taught. That brings opinions, selfish views, and confusion. Churches today are throwing doctrine out the window, saying doctrine divides. They're relying on feelings and emotions, entertainment, music. That'll bring a, a crowd in, won't it? It also has found a, a solid and important place on Sunday mornings within the church. It's often given greater place than the preaching of the Word of God. And a lot of people attend a particular church because of their music ministry. That says a great deal, doesn't it? Now, when you as a church begin to see what is important and to adjust in order to incorporate these principles, you'll start to see a decline in attendance. Doctrine is not what the people want. They want a Reader's Digest approach, and they want inner emotional stimulus. This will lift them up from the drudgery and the conflicts that they face during the week. The way I see it, we're in a battle all week and have a very, very real adversary. We have people who are contrary and obnoxious. We have people who reject anything to do with the Lord, who practice uh, perversions and who want us to join them in them, and we have to say no. In our work life, we have people who want us to lie and to turn numbers and to do certain things. And they seek to kill and to destroy my joy, my peace, and my fellowship with Christ. I don't need entertainment as much as I need to know how to stand. 
One of the primary jobs of the church is to equip the saints, not to entertain them. We have gymnasiums, bowling alleys, basketball, baseball, softball, and all other sorts of diversions within the church. It keeps people coming, you see. What does this tell you about the focus of the church? It's mainly internal. Now, when we begin to stand firm in these principles, word will spread. People will classify that church in a particular category. Most often, it's legalistic, dogmatic, too strict, shut off from society, thinking they're superior to all others, cultish, sectarian, the leader of a satanic people, brainwashing others. Don't they recognize that we are called to be good citizens and to participate in society? I mean, we are in the world, right? Well, consider this. Go back in history. Noah was of the line of Seth. Seth was the leader of a group that began to call upon the Lord back in the book of Genesis. Now, of that line, there were thousands and thousands of people who professed to call upon the Lord. And they were not all living debauched and lascivious lives. Many considered themselves to be okay with God. Spiritual. I feel good about my relationship with the Lord. They had a knowledge of God. They knew the story. They had heard what happened to Adam and Eve. But they lived for this world according to the principles of this world. When the floodwaters began to pour from the sky and rise from the earth, only eight of them were found in the ark. What does that say? How loudly does that speak? Listen, we are standing not against flesh and blood. We're standing against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. We're standing against Satan and his demons and the domination on this world. Integrity is shown also when we say, no, no, we can't and won't participate in that. And we say this as a congregation, and we all are in agreement. We stand as one. We think as one man with joy and satisfaction. Not a competence in one another so much as a competence in God, and that we all stand with God. It's not one man that's leading, and we are all supposed to submit to his direction. No. It is Christ who leads, and we are convinced of his leading, and fully competent and committed to his word. If we are not convinced of these things, we will stumble and fall. We're weak. The Spirit of God says and shows repeatedly throughout Scripture that it's better to trust in God than man. So we, as a church, hear a message on Sunday. We go home and study God's Word, compare what the preacher said and taught from the pulpit with what is being said and taught in the Bible. If we have questions, we ask them without hesitation. If somebody gets offended by our asking questions, then we got a, we got a problem. Martin Lloyd-Jones pastored a strong, strong church in Aberavon, I believe, no, in uh, England back in the day. And the way he started building his congregation in competence was every Friday night, all men were invited to come to a meeting where they could ask any question they wished to ask concerning Scripture. One of the fundamental principles of that meeting was you must have studied that issue and be ready to defend your position as well as seek an answer with logical questions. So people came, and they began to see the truth of God's Word. Questions were asked without resistance. And they were challenged, but answers were arrived at. An agreement was reached, and a unity was developed. 
that stuck with that church for years and years and years. Now, why would I suggest these things? Because we're aiming at maintaining the unity that we have in Christ. Christ is our unifying factor. He is our unity, and we've been given this unity. In order to walk together, we need to communicate with one another and to understand one another's views and compare that with the truth. We need to come to a unity of the faith. And this comes as we fellowship with one another. We'll never maintain unity from the outside. If we sit at home and try to have unity, it won't work. If we try to have a group prayer meeting over the internet, it won't work. The only way to maintain unity within the church and to share a common life is to be engaged together in our pursuit and our common struggle. In the past history of the church, people knew to be in the church on the Sundays. They knew that these things were imperative. They would ride their horse and buggy through the snow to get to church. They would have camp meetings in the mountains that lasted for the entire weekend to hear the Word of God. Today, if we see the weather is going to be cold, we stop the meeting. We stop the evening meetings, for sure, and Wednesday nights as well, because, well, it's cold. This is the trend, and it's not a good one, not by any means. We might be saving money on electric bills and what, but we're losing the community. I don't get to see you much at all. We don't talk in person because we rarely have time for a good conversation during our two hours together on Sunday morning. The personal touch and the personal relationship and fellowship is being removed. When was the last time you had somebody from church over to your house to eat and to sit down with you and have a discussion? We see the people are getting bored within the congregation and they seem to be getting interested. So we confer with our groups and our organizations and our conventions, and we determine to spice up the service with some songs and entertainment, with meals and outings in an effort to keep one another interested. Well, we've sold out. We're losing focus. We need to keep the important things important. We start looking inside the church for satisfaction. We no longer are aggressively seeking to stand firm in the world and upon the word. When our goal is focused on common objectives, and we're pushing for a common victory, and we're desperate about winning, the internal problems seem to fade into the background. We begin to look outside of ourselves. What is Christ's purpose for the church? What does he want us as a body to do? When we're focused on internal issues, these things become far more insignificant to us. Why? Because the internal problems begin to grow. Simply put, the church is to equip the saints. This is what we are to be about. The church is to equip the saints for battle, and the saints then go into all the world preaching the gospel. The church is a place for us to to worship God and to learn of Him. It is not a place for us to be entertained. It is not a place for our comedians to come and make us laugh. And it is not a place for rock concerts. It's where we come together to worship God and to learn how to worship God. How do we approach the eternal king of kings? There's a story told of the queen of England who had a granddaughter that was born and grew and was brought in to be introduced to her. Well, the little grandchild saw her sitting on the throne and ran and jumped in her lap and said, Hello, uh, grandmama. Well, the queen dropped her out of her lap quite quickly and spoke to the superiors in the room. They stood the little girl up who was shocked And she told that little girl in no uncertain terms, my little darling, you need to learn how to approach the queen. We need to learn how to approach God's word. 
We need to be instructed in doctrine that would guide us in these things. We need to learn how to conduct ourselves outside. And we need to understand these things. These things build competence and encourage us. And they build like-minded individuals within the body who can lock arms in battle. The world is going to oppose us. They're going to oppose these ideas and these things. They say they have their meetings. Why don't we attend them? They have AA for those who struggle with alcohol. They have Narconine for those who struggle with drugs. They have all sorts of meetings. Why can't we go and join them? Well, we operate according to the principles of God's word. We don't intermingle. We don't put water in the wine, so to speak. The world will begin to meddle in our affairs, and they'll seek to correct us, and positions will be given to them, hoping that perhaps they can show us a better life now, like Joel Osteen wants us to see. But why persecution? Why does God allow you and me the privilege of being persecuted? Remember, he's talking to the church. Suffering reveals that we're on the right path. I would never recommend that you seek suffering as a hope of determining your your solidity in the faith. If you conduct yourselves personally, walking with Christ, you will encounter resistance. You will be persecuted. It's part of the package. If the church stays focused and maintains its focus and is aggressively seeking to please God, its message will be clear and the word will spread. And you will find that the message of the gospel is offensive to a lot of people, more so than you dreamed. Attacks will come from other churches, and that's painful because it's like being attacked from inside the family. And you'll get attacks from the world as well. This gives you witness that you are right on track. Why? Because the cross of Christ is offensive, and people will react to that. So it gives you an indication of where you stand with Christ. I stand for the cause of Christ. They don't. If you cave and you follow the ways of the world, you'll be like salt that has no flavor. Not only will the world ignore your message, but they'll cast you aside as irrelevant and inconsequential within the community. It also reveals that those whose destiny is hell and destruction are real, and they're all around us. The bad guys oppose the good guys. The opposition is clearly defined. You know who to stand with, and you know who stands in the enemy's camp. You don't fight against them, but the ideas and the activities they propose and support which are contrary to the revealed Word of God. We do not support homosexuality. We don't. We stand firmly against this as a serious, serious sin. The homosexual community reacts violently to this. They say we hate them. Well, that's not true. They say we don't support them as we should. We can't support them as they want us to. We do not support what the government is promoting in our public schools. Why? They're preaching lies. The government reacts violently, declaring concerned parents to be domestic terrorists. Now, that's a big thing when the United States government stands up in such a way. But we're exalting God. We're exalting what is right. They seek to force upon us what is evil and perverted. So we're persecuted in our position. They're applauded and encouraged. They have the money and they have the power, right? Well, what do these things reveal to us? We ask why persecution... It reveals certain things. It clearly gives us a defined line of demarcation. If you stand firm in Christ, you will be persecuted. So when persecution comes, it shows where you are standing. You're standing with Paul and Peter and the saints throughout history and with Christ himself. You'll be experiencing the same conflict that we saw in Paul. 
And here's a special note to remember. If we as a church stand in such a way, or as individuals, we will be persecuted. We will not be able to avoid it. But let this be due to righteousness and not hypocrisy. But we'll also be able to see those who are destined for destruction. We can pray properly and we can prepare ourselves. Thank you very much for following along in our study on Philippians, and we hope that you continue as we continue with the study here. You are well appreciated, and we hope that this has been of great benefit to you. Thank you very much.